Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lineage Speaks, the podcast. I'm your host, Martelena Donterpel. Today, sharing from her book, Miraculous, we have Lena Sebula. Lena Sebula was born and raised in a post-USSR Ukrainian iron mining town. She has struggled in poverty trying to survive. She is a drug addiction and human trafficking survivor. Today, Lena is a wife and mother of three beautiful children. She is an author of a spiritual autobiography called Miraculous. It's raw and transparent account of her life chronicles. Portion of the profits go to Fight for Freedom to support survivors of trafficking and Zonta International to create a better world for women and girls. Lena Sebula is a social justice advocate professional public speaker, and host of Love and Be Loved podcast. Through her brand, Lena is sharing the good news of God's love and creating awareness about the reality of human trafficking. She wants to move people with encouragement, inspiration, and motivation, and to offer hope that there is a chance to have love, joy, peace, and wholeness again after trauma. Chapter 1. Beauty for Ashes Therefore, is anyone in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and new has come. 2 Corinthians 15.17 The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. Isaiah 61, 1-3 Looking back on my life, reflecting on where I've come from, where I am now, and where I'm going, I can tell you these verses are absolutely true. Beauty from ashes, that's what I've got. Such a change I would never think possible in my lifetime. Sometimes, I can't even believe the life I've lived, almost as if when I'm remembering pieces, I'm watching them happen to someone else. Some of my memories play more like a horror movie than simple recollections. Regardless of what I've been through, what flashes of horror invaded my life now, I know that I'm truly healed. I am a new creation. I was neglected as a child and grew into a lost and angry teenager, looking for meaning and belonging wherever I thought I could be found. By the time I was in my mid-twenties, I was hopeless, alone, empty, broken, and living in constant fear. One day everything changed. I gave my life to Christ and chose to follow Him. It was a long, hard road to walk, but somewhere along the way, I became a loving wife and a mother of three beautiful children. I knew I was cherished and embraced by God who gave his life for me and a husband who would do anything for me. I was whole and live in the security of hope that in Christ. God's timing is perfect. His grace is amazing. I would not be who I am today without turbulent experiences of early years of my life. 
For that, I'm genuinely grateful for everything I've experienced. My mother always used to say that life isn't whatever happened to you. It was what you made out of whatever happened to you. This was her atheistic mantra, positive thinking. Use everything as an opportunity to learn, etc. Not for all the positive thinking in the world could I have turned my past into something beautiful. Only the grace of God could do that. If I had only known growing up I had a perfect father, I would have avoided doing half of the stuff I did in my life. Occasionally, I share bits and pieces of my life with friends, the lessons I've learned. I enjoy talking about times when God has been faithful to me. But these were usually things in my recent past, things that happened to me since I became a Christian, and they were usually shared with people I knew and trusted. I never thought God would ask me to share my story, my whole story, with all the world. In fact, if I didn't feel that God had directly asked me to write this book, I would probably bury my history, never given a chance to see the light of the day. I had a carefully crafted story that was honest enough. It covered the basis without anything incriminating. I grew up in Ukraine, moved to Israel, then immigrated to Canada. Simple. Within this, people understood that my upbringing was rough, but I often lied to avoid questions about just how rough it really was. Scared of rejection and judgment. But God has planned for me and for my broken past as well. Even if it looked like a mess in the beginning, it has a beautiful ending. Well, not quite yet. I'm still currently enjoying the middle. I can remember the day I finally decided to be vulnerable and share everything. It was a Sunday. My oldest daughter took her younger twin siblings downstairs and made them breakfast. For the first time in a long time, I was laying fully awake in my bed with no one screaming, Mommy! It was wonderful feeling. I stretched lazily in my warm, comfy bed, listening to the rain fall outside. Moment of quiet reflection like this seems to happen rarely. My thoughts drifted to my past. The memories and all the feelings that are attached to those memories flooded me. I never just remember facts. I absorbed the feelings of the moment and relieve it later on probably why I hate horror movies. I get stuck in fear relieving the panic long after it's been copying into my brain. This propensity to get immersed in old feelings, it's partly why I always block out my past, even from myself to extent. You see, this vivid memory is a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's great, like remembering the smell of the forest or field on a hot summer's days when you actually stuck shoveling your driveway after another snowstorm. Other times it's awful. You transport it to a place you never asked to be. On this particular morning, I was not experiencing pleasant memory, a strange contrast to my very peaceful morning. Instead of being in my warm, comfy bed, 
I was back in Ukraine, where I grew up. I was very young and have lost key to our apartment. My father was very angry. He lost his temper and began to beating me with the belt. I bounced from painful memory to painful memory, wondering why this cycle of misery was playing out in my mind and my body. I started to feel uneasy. All I wanted was a nice, peaceful morning while I got ready for church. I complained to my husband that I have felt tricked by God. I was sure that he wanted me to share my story and his miracles in my life, but I wasn't ready to discuss all the pain that led to those miracles. I was already halfway through my first draft of this very book, and yet there was not single detail from my past in any of the pages. I didn't agree to put my misery on display. I was writing this book to highlight all the good stuff that happened to me. That's when I felt the nudge. You weren't born a Christian, 25-year-old mother of three kids with a wonderful husband and a house in suburbs. This is only part of your story. There is a long beginning you have to wrestle with. I broke down crying. I really didn't feel prepared. I assumed my book would be all sunshines and rainbows making people feel warm and fuzzy. Unfortunately, my love has been far from sunshines and rainbows. I turned to my husband with tears in my eyes and asked him how much he really knew about my story. He answered truthfully that he didn't know all of my story, not that I hadn't tried to tell him. Before our wedding, I wrote him a letter detailing all that I had been through, all that I had done. I wanted to be honest with him. I wanted to him to know exactly who he was marrying so that he never felt hoodwinked. Perhaps some part of me still didn't believe I deserved such happiness. So I was giving him one last chance to escape. I gave him the letter I wrote, but he refused to read it. Whatever is in this letter is between you and God. I love you for who you are now. Pray about this letter, then burn it. Exhaling with relief, I took the letter back and destroyed it, thinking we'd never have to discuss my past again. But my time has come. I was born in a modern culturally Russian city, right in the middle of Ukraine. Geologists discovered rich deposits of iron in the land that surrounded my city. So many families, like my own, immigrated from Russia to work in the mines and factories that were created to process the newly discovered resource. That's how my city was born. It was young, with no glamorous history like its surrounding neighbors, but it was my city. It will always have a special place in my heart, but it was complex time to live in Ukraine. I experienced all the common hardship my city had to offer. Rumpled living conditions, smog from the factories, little access to heated water. But I was also gifted with its beauty. Wide open fields, massive skies, streams and brooks to play in. In many ways it was child's paradise. Little Alenushka, my grandparents lovingly called me. Nothing about was little though. I was born an explorer with dreams to see the world. 
I always carried sense of wonder with me wherever I went, leaving my house early in the morning. I would wander off to the beach, explore the forest, sneak to the factories, and hide out in the mines. My friends, I would scurry along the train, train tracks, climbing over the pile of rubble, and stare in awe at the heavy machinery all around us. While I loved nature, it was also fascinating to see what humans were capable as well. The mines and the factories felt as large as entire cities, and often there was a black cloud of soot enveloping the area, especially after the mine explosions. The earth and the houses shook, but it was the norm. Soot, loud machinery and dirt were all very familiar to me. My mother worked in a factory operating the crane and assembled other equipment. She was a pro at what she did. One time the city discovered there was sunk in World War II tank at the bottom of the river that ran through my city. My mother was in charge of bringing it to the surface and restoring it so that it could be used in a monument. She let me climb inside the corroded body to explore nothing but rust and empty bullet shells, but I loved it. I had a strong imagination and playing around inside this tank made me proud of my country. Looking back, there probably should have been some boundaries for safety. Maybe there was, but they were never imposed on me. The factories were my playground, but also my home in a sense. For many people, the factory where you work became your life. It was where you bathed, one of the few places that provided hot water, where you socialized, they had the pool tables and the swimming pool, and even where you got some rest. They had sauna, and everybody worked very long hours, so the factory made these other basic needs as a courtesy. I would come before my mother shipped to the end and collect some fabric scraps and would use the scraps to make outfits for my dolls. Exciting to score big pieces of print of any or anything shiny I could use as an accessory. I designed the outfits and sewed everything myself. My sewing skills weren't just for the luxury of my dolls. It was a necessary skill for myself. I had to mend my own clothes. My friends were the best part of my childhood. We relish in having this absolute freedom to go wherever we pleased. I recognize it now as a neglect. We were orphans with parents, but at the time it was intoxicating. In summer we were dirty and covered in sweat. In winter we were soaking, wet and frozen to the core. No one owns no pants or proper gloves, of course. We would scavenge for pieces of cardboard or plastic bags that we could use to toboggan down the ice-covered hills. Hills? I would never let my kids go down now. They were high and steep and rocky and very close to the road. There was no hot chocolate and movie waiting for me when I got home. Nor did our parents ever ask what we were up to. We were completely alone. One year, the city council decided to build a church. I could not care less that it was church they were building, but the construction zone became our favorite playground. 
We wander through the half-built buildings, jumping from the beams, playing hide-and-seek in a labyrinth of basement. We were hungry, always hungry, but we were also happy. To have a crew to do life with was amazing. Our homes weren't that great, so we made our own imaginary one of the old gigantic willow tree that grew in front of our building. There was no fear, no stress, no bullying, and no loneliness. We were there for each other. There were the sunny days before my country's economy collapsed and my parents' marriage fell apart. I would never again look back at my childhood with the fondness after that. I often think a lot about my parents, my father especially. What I know of him is only fragments, pieces together by memory and things I've learned after his death. He was a quiet and simple man who loved being in the nature. He left his dream life behind and settled into mundane city life and boring factory job to be with my mom. He never told us that he was one of the first USSR mountain climbers who climbed the Everest. I read the article from the newspaper saved in his album a few years later after he died. My mother, on another hand, hated nature. She was 100% a city girl. She complete opposite of my dad. She was stubborn and dominating, a trademark of being the firstborn of her family and the trait that seems to trickle down the generations. My mother suffered from my grandma's desire to dominate and control and couldn't wait to escape her controlling grip. Once my mom was free from the control of my grandmother, no one could tell her what to do, and as a result, I suffered. Now that I have my own daughters, they also suffer at times. I can't be controlling and demanding of obedience. I learn from their mistakes while creating scores of my own, until I recognize this pattern of control shaking its way through my family history like a river with no end. Despite these differences, my dad gave up everything for my mom and me. My mother got pregnant with me before she was married and married my dad, and while she was still living at her home. Her parents didn't approve of their relationship and tried to convince her to stay. But always looking for an escape, my mom married my dad as a way out. Once married, she considered the responsibilities of a wife and a mother to be a burden. Because it felt like a burden, she figured she had made a mistake in marrying my father, so she divorced him when my sister and I were very little. Once divorced, she realized raising kids and keeping a home without my dad was even more of a burden. She got back together with my dad, but it didn't last. It was the relationship of convenience for her, not love. She was unwilling to change, compromise, and communicate all things necessary for a marriage to work. She partied with her friends and left my father at home to take care of the cleaning and cooking. His male pride and dignity completely trample over day by day. His friends and community often poke fun at the fact that he was the only man in town with a stroller. It didn't matter to me that my father was the housekeeper. My mother was a terrible cook and even worse cleaner, but I came to resent my father's weakness. 
I couldn't understand how he stood by while my mother acted the way she did. Not that my father was perfect, forever my dad would confront my mom regarding her behavior and salts would fly and tension would rise. Many fights turned physical. Back home it wasn't uncommon for a husband to hit his wife, but for my dad it was unacceptable behavior. He was upset that he lost control. My mother had a big black eye and I saw this and vowed never to marry a man who would beat me. Such violence back then was so common that if my mother had told people that what really happened, it wouldn't be a big deal. But she was way too proud woman, so she was telling people that the suitcase had fallen on her face instead. I was never certain how my father would react to things, and this uncertainty made me live on edge. I could do one thing one day, with no consequences and do the same thing the next day with disastrous consequences. Abuse, verbal and physical was my reality. One time I broke crystal vase and was so afraid that I locked myself in the bathroom. There I prayed to God, who I only knew about from Christian songs. I said, God, if you truly exist, please don't let my dad beat me again. I wasn't sure if it was enough. So I stuffed a small pillow into my pants to protect my butt. When my dad came home, I bravely confessed to my crime, emboldened by the protective pillow that I have in my pants. So my surprise, my dad did nothing. I consider this a miracle. By the way, I was like around six years old that time. <laughs> it was actually my first prayer and that's when I actually remember that I spoke to God, like, that's my, my first, like, actually conscious memory. To my surprise, my dad did nothing. I considered this a miracle and attributed to my bathroom cry for help. I had the sense that God had heard my prayer. If only I knew, then God really was with me. Shortly after this incident, my father quit his job. I wish I could say I knew why, but I don't. He then started drinking heavily and become an alcoholic. While my father seemed to be crumbling, my mother didn't care. My father was pulling the weight of both parents until he finally snapped. That's when the drinking began. Because of my parents' negligence, we fell into debt and lost everything we had. The government cut off our electricity and hot water. With my parents out of work, we own money for rent and there had no food for days. Our house was infested with mold and cockroaches. When my kids say that we have no food or that they have nothing to wear, I get angry. They don't know what that nothing to eat means an empty fridge for months. Starving means your stomach is so empty that the pain makes you dizzy. Nothing to wear means your only outfit already dirty and threadbare, doesn't even keep you warm. My parents were exceptional actors though, pretending to all our friends and family that everything was fine. Desperate for a paycheck and hopeless drunk, my dad went to Moscow for a construction job. I was almost 14, my sister 12 and my brother 7. With my dad gone, my mother suddenly disappeared without the trace. 
It hit me that they abandoned us in an empty, cold, dark apartment with no means to survive. Eventually, I would quit school. I was embarrassed of my old, dirty, stinky clothes that always hungry and always a hung hungry stomach. On top of all, I had to take care of my siblings. For a while, I was their mother. I couldn't find the words to explain to my baby brother that my parents were both gone and that I didn't know where they were and when they would come back. That's when my childhood was stolen. I spent so much of my life judging my parents for decisions they made, but I've come to see how the choices were made in the place of desperation and brokenness. I expected love and protection when they have none for themselves. My anger gave way to pity when I realized this. My home, if you can call it home, was always full of strangers and coming and going as they please. Young guys were flirting with me and old parts would shamelessly hit on me. My parents did nothing to protect me, so I became an easy target. There were times I was drugged in the basement of my own apartment and raped. Sometimes I'll be lucky and I have warning that men were on the way. That way I could jump out of my window and disappear for a few hours, thankful to escape their torment for a time being. When I had no warning if the men were in the mood to play, I was the readily available victim. This abuse and torture only hardened my heart further. I eventually turned to drugs to ease some of the pain. Although I have few physical scars at the time, my soul was thoroughly murdered and there was yet more heartbreak on the way. When I thought things couldn't get any worse, actually one month before my 15th birthday, I woke up in one day with the severe abdominal pain. Until then, I had never experienced the pain so excruciating. Like all my bones were breaking and all my muscles were contracting at the same time. I had no fever, so I stayed in bed hoping that the pain would just go away. As the day wore on and my pain increased, I could not stay quiet. Eventually, my mother responded to my wailing, perhaps the only time I've known the ounce of motherly affection from her. I put my head on her lap and she gently stroked my hair. Despite the pain, I could have stayed in that tender moment forever. Finally, my mother's love. But it was over as quick as it had started. She decided I needed a doctor. Once at the doctor's office, it became apparent that I was actually having labor pains. I was given birth. I was shocked and confused, waiting for some type of explanation. You have to be pregnant to have a baby. I thought, hoping this was all a mistake. You're having a baby, the doctor confirmed. Time froze and I became paralyzed as dread washed over me, then guilt, then shame. How could my starving, emaciated and often intoxicated body sustain an innocent little baby without me knowing? I decided to leave the clinic. I wasn't sure where I would go, but this baby not gonna be born. The doctor stopped me and called the ambulance to take me to the hospital while my mother stood in the periphery. In that moment, I hated her the most I had ever felt. How did she not see this coming? 
then the hate turned inwards again. How did I not see this coming? I hated myself for not knowing. My water broke and the pain and fear and fear escalated. I was ready to pass out. I was familiar with the doctor discussed. I had encountered many times before. Only this time he started to scold my mother. She wasn't having that, so she left. I was alone. Again. Defeated, I followed the instructions without arguing. Surrounded by strangers, this was the end. My labor was so intense, but quick. Within two hours, my baby was born. Her tiny pink body was alive, wiggling and making noises. The nurse put her on the table beside me. As I turned to face her, I was again astounded that my abused body was able to carry something so pure. But deep down I knew the alcohol, the drugs and starvation would all have impact on her health. The pediatrician counted her fingers and toes. All was fine there, but something else was wrong. She said that we should schedule an appointment with head of the hospital to review our options. The next day, my mother came and we went to the office for our meeting with the doctors. They looked at us both with judgment and disgust in their eyes. The doctor shamed us for the negligence and gave us long moral lecture. Then he said that baby has a birth defect. The palate of the roof of the mouth which separates the oral cavity from the nasal cavity wasn't formed. Therefore, she wouldn't be able to feed and probably wouldn't survive. She would need very close medical attention for as long as she lived. Don't bring her home, my mother said bluntly. Who will take care of her? You? I was numb. Just find out my daughter would most likely die. If you refuse to take the baby home, we will take care of her for however long she lasts, gently said one of the nurses. I was devastated and began contemplating if and how I could care for my own baby. They emphasized all the medical attention she would need and it became clear that I would not be able to provide for her. I started crying, repulsed. I turned out to be just like my mother, careless and neglectful. The decision was made for my baby to stay in the hospital, but in order for all paperwork to be completed and everything finalized, I had to give her a name and give up my parental rights. Xenia, my sweet baby Xenia. She would be 23 years old today. I can remember the deep sorrow of my time in the hospital very well. Back then, you had to stay in the hospital for seven days after giving birth. I was in the room with three other women who were all enjoying the presence of their newborns. They joy as they told stories of anticipation and excited family members cut my heart like a knife. Many days I could not stop crying. I knew this pain was something I was have to live with for the rest of my life. But the women were kind to me. They knew I had lost my baby and took pity on me. Perhaps one of the only few people in my life so far who did so. 
They fed me as I had no food. They helped me rub my chest to stop my milk from coming. Something I had never experienced from my own mother. As I've said all this time, I was alone. My parents were in the dark. I wanted to spare them this horror. I was so ashamed. I didn't even know who Xenia's father was. The sexual abuse I suffered was so frequent. It was impossible to know. My agony was crushing. The day came for me to be discharged from the hospital. The other women's families was normal people. I thought to myself, all came. There were flowers, champagne, gifts for the baby, gifts for the doctors, and I had no one and nothing. Each woman would live with a little color-coded bundle of joy. Everyone knew that blue was for a boy and red was for a girl. Not me. I woke out of that hospital empty-handed and heartbroken, only to return to even emptier life. Hours passed while I waited for someone to pick me up. No one came. Eventually, my eight-year-old baby brother showed up. My mother had a huge black eye. She said she got into the fight the night before and that she had the hangover. Like it was supposed to make me feel better that she didn't show up for me. Although I left my baby in the hospital, she never left my heart. My friend's mom worked in the hospital and I was able to get updates on Xenia's progress from her. The updates were never good and hopeful. After three months, Xenia passed away. I knew it in my heart even before I knew it in my head. Despite not being able to take care of her in life, I was determined to give her a proper burial. I felt I owned her at least that much. I went to the morgue to collect her little lifeless body. My friends were able to get some cash together for me to buy an actual casket, the only dignity I could offer her. I got home and placed the small coffin in a kitchen table. The weight of the grief was suffocated. Thankfully, no one was home, and I had this time to myself. I went to the cemetery. My friends helped me to dig the hole in the frozen earth. People were getting ready to celebrate New Year's Eve, and I was burying my child. I was 15 years old. So there were two options for people like me, jail or death. I had seen and known enough people who went one of those ways, and I did not want to end up like them. The quiet voice I heard speaking to me on the hilltops in the countryside whisper again, you were made for more. That's why when this vague offer of the job came to me, I was instantly interested. The mysterious man introduced me to his friend, a very nice and very rich-looking woman. This woman brought me to her house and offered me fancy and coffee and sweets. I was so impressed. She told me that she would be able to find me a job. No specifics, just a job. Without much thought, overwhelmed with her pleasantness of this woman and all her wealth, I accepted eager to escape. Almost immediately, her team went to work. I was taken to fancy salon and have my hair done and was dressed in a fashion from even fancier store. Wearing fur coat and the full face of makeup, I started to question what kind of work I would actually be doing and why I had to look so nice. Looking back, I understand I was naive, but what did I know? 
I vaguely remember the airport and how I got through customs I'll never know. And the plane ride is even further in my memory. I just know that one day I woke up hearing the Muslim call to prayer. Allahu Akbar! Ran out. Confused, I tried to ascertain where I was. I look out of the window and saw clementine oranges grows on the trees. For kid who only saw this fruit on Christmas, this was fascinating. Where was I? It was warm summer day and I quickly realized that my thick jeans, heavy plate short and winter boots were well out of place. I was sweating. Then, as any addict, I started to think about where my next dose was going to come from. I was already nauseous and I was going to need it soon. I was on heroin. Fear and panic cut into my throat. There wasn't going to be next dose. My withdrawals was bad. For many days I couldn't eat and was throwing up nonstop. I was weak but remained allure by the glimpse of my new surroundings. I find out I was in Cairo, Egypt. I was actually trafficked and sold into the brothel. I called my book Miraculous and definition number one, it's performed by or involving a supernatural power or agency. And second one, of the nature of miracle marvelous. This is the only word I can think of to describe my life and how God saved me and redeemed my story. Without this book, my past would have remained unfinished business, an area of my mind I wouldn't willingly explore and share. I always had hoped that in writing this I would find a way to make peace with my past. Having finished this book, not only have I made the peace, but I've received so much healing. The areas of my life I thought were too dark to talk about have had the light turned on. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcoming. John 1.5 When that light Jesus shined, I realized, instead of empty and broken, I'm whole. Instead of lonely, I'm cherished. Instead of hopeless, I have hope. Jesus have exchanged my shame for joy, taken my fears and insecurities and given me peace. I was once an angry, selfish woman. I'm now peaceful and seek to serve others by sharing the love that I have found. The miracles in this transformation if you had told me back then, when I was still living in Ukraine, that one day I end up in Canada with love and husband, three kids, uh, and hairstyling business, I would laugh in your face. If you would told me when I was working as a prostitute in Israel, that one day I'd be advocating for victims of human trafficking through organizations like Fight for Freedom and Operation Underground Railroad, I would have you call you crazy. If you have told me when I first came to Canada and was struggling to learn English that one day I write the book and will speak to large groups of people about my life, I probably would have taken you to psychologist myself. You see, only God can redeem our broken past and make beauty from ashes. I don't deserve the life I now have, the peace, joy, love and husband, healthy kids and beautiful home. It's all because of God, not because of what I have done, but because of who He is. My purpose is to show you Jesus through the eyes of a wicked sinner who has been saved, redeemed, and justified. 
I understand that without the knowledge of my past, you will never grasp the weight and the vastness of sin that has been forgiven me. I'm here to tell you, God does not make exceptions. Salvation is a free gift for everyone. If he did this for me, he will do it for you. He loved me in my darkest hour. He sacrificed his life for me. I don't deserve it and I could not earn it. I was wicked and I loved it. For all that I've done in my life, I should be punished. But God, the two words in the heart of the gospel. It wasn't so long ago that you were murdered in the old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first things about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and it exhaled disobedience. We all did, all of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's wonder God didn't lose his temper and goes away with the whole a lot of us. Instead, immersed in mercy, and with the incredible love, He embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did it all this on His own, with no help from us. Then He picked us and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus our Messiah. Now God has us where He wants us, with all the time in this world and the next, to show grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving it's all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we probably go around bragging that we've done all things. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him and the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better be doing, the message, Ephesians 2, 4, 10. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review us if our stories help you on your journey. Follow us on Instagram at Lineage Speaks the Podcast. Until the next episode. Honor the light within you and let it guide your way on.